Chapter Twenty Five of The Cave in the Mountain by Edward Ellis, Hunting a Steed. Leaving Fred Munson to watch for the approach of the Indians, it becomes necessary to follow Mickey O'Rooney and Sut Simpson on their hunt for a horse with which to continue their flight from the mountains and across the prairies. It cannot be said that the scout, in starting upon this expedition, had any particular plan in view. As he remarked, Indians were around them, and wherever Indians were found, it was safe to look for the best kind of horses. Wherever the best opportunity offered, there he intended to strike. With this view, the first position of their expedition was in the nature of a survey by which they intended to locate the field in which to operate. The Irishman could not fail to see the necessity of caution and silence, and leaving his more experienced companion to take the lead, he followed him closely without speaking or halting. The way continued rough and broken, being very difficult to travel at times, but after they had tramped a considerable distance Mickey noticed that they were going downhill at quite a rapid rate, and finally they reached the lowermost level where the scout faced him. "'Do you know where you be?' he asked in a significant tone. "'Know where I be?' repeated the Irishman in amazement. "'Who should I know, as the Spalpeens always said, after I knocked em down at the fair? What means of information have I—' "'You've been over this spot afore.' continued the scout, enjoying the perplexity of his friend. The latter scratched his head and looked about him with a more puzzled expression than ever. "'The only place it resembles in my mind is a hilly portion in the north of Ireland. Do you mind to say we've arrived there?' "'This is the pass which you tramped up and down and where you got into trouble.' "'It don't look like any part that I ever observed.' But why do you have such a hankering for this ravine in which we haven't been used very well? Here's where the engines be, and here's where we must look for houses. Shh! Mickey had not heard the slightest sound, but he imitated the action of the scout and dodged down in some undergrowth, which was dense enough to hide them from the view of anyone who did not fairly trample upon them. They had crouched but a minute or two in this position when Mickey fancied he heard the tramp of a single horse approaching on a slow walk. He dared not raise his head to look, although he noticed that the shoulders of the scout in front of him were slowly rising as he peered stealthily forward. The experiences of the last few days had been remarkable in more than one respect. The two men had set out to secure a horse, neither deeming it probable that the one which was desired above all others could be obtained, and yet, while they were crouching in the bushes, the very animal, the one which had been ridden by Mickey O'Rooney, walked slowly forth to view on his way up the ravine or pass. The most noticeable feature of the scene was that he was bestrode by an Indian warrior whose head was bent in a meditative mood. The redskin, so far as could be seen, was without a companion, the steed walking at the slowest possible gait and approaching a point which was no more than a dozen feet away. The instant Mickey caught sight of the warrior and recognized his own horse, there was a slight movement on the part of the scout. The Irishman narrowly escaped uttering an exclamation of surprise and delight as he identified his property, but he checked himself in time to notice that Sut was stealthily bringing his gun around to the front with the unmistakable purpose of shooting the Apache. The heart of the Irishman revolted at such a proceeding. 
there seemed something so cowardly in thus killing an adversary without giving him an opportunity to defend himself that he could not consent to it. Reaching forward, he twitched the sleeve of Sut, who turned his head in surprise. "'What is it you're driving at me, laddie?' "'Shh! Him!' he whispered in return, darting his head toward the slowly approaching horseman, winking and blinking so significantly that it was easy to supply the words which were omitted. "'But why don't you go out and tell him what you intend, so that he can inform his friends and bid them all good-bye? It ain't the thing to pop a man over in that style without giving him a chance to meditate on the chances of his life, so be easy with him, Soot.' The scout seemed at a loss to understand the meaning of his companion, whose waggery and drollery cropped out at such unexpected times that no one knew when to expect it. The Indian was approaching and was already close at hand. Keen-eared, and with their senses always about them, Apaches are likely to detect the slightest disturbance. The scout glanced at the horseman and then at Mickey, who was in earnest. "'It's the only way to get the horse, you lunkhead, so we can keep the meat trap shit. "'We don't want a horse if we got to murder a man to get the seam. "'But the only way out here to treat an Injun is to shoot him the minute you see him. That's sensible.' "'I don't want you to do it,' said Mickey, so pleadingly that the scout could not refuse. "'Oh, keep still and don't interfere, and I promise you I won't slide him under unless he gets in the way and won't get out.' "'All right,' responded Mickey, not exactly sure that he understood him, but willing to trust one who was not without his rude traits of manhood. All this took place in a few seconds, during which the Apache horseman had approached, and another moment's delay would have given him a good chance of escape by flight. As noiselessly as a shadow, the scout arose from his knees to a stooping position, took a couple of long, silent strides forward, and then straightened up directly in front of the startled horse and still more startled rider. The former snorted and partly reared up, but seemed to understand as if by an instinct that the stranger was more entitled to claim him than the one upon his back. Another step forward, and the scout held the bridle in his left hand while he addressed the astounded Apache in his own tongue, a liberal translation being as follows. "'Let my brother, the dog of an Apache, slide off that animal and vamoose the ranch, or I'll lift his hair quicker in lightning.' The savage deemed it advisable to slide. He carried a knife at his girdle and held a rifle in his grasp, but the scout had come upon him so suddenly that he felt he was master of the situation, so without attempting to argue the matter with him he dropped to the ground and began retreating up the ravine with his face toward his conqueror as if he mistrusted treachery. "'Our blessings go with you,' said Mickey, rising to his feet and waving his hand toward the alarmed Apache. "'We don't want to harm you, and you may go in peace.' "'There, Soot,' he added, as he came up beside him. We showed that spalpeen Marcy when he scarcely had the right to expect it, and he will appreciate the seam. You're right, grunted the scout. He'll show you how he'll appreciate it the minute he gets a chance to draw a bead onto you. But you've learned that there are plenty of armaments in this section, and if we're going to get away with this horse, there ain't no time to lose. Up with you there and take the bridle. Mickey did as he requested, not exactly understanding what the intention was. "'What is to be done?' he asked, as the head of the animal was turned back over the route that he had just travelled, 
and let her ride alone while you walk beside me? It's the idea for the present so's to save the strength of the horse. A half mile or so up the pass is a trail which leads down into it. The Mustang can go over that like a streak of greased lightning, and there's where we'll leave the pass and make off through the woods and mountains till we can join in with the Yunker and go it without trouble. A few words of hurried consultation completed the plans. As they were very likely to encounter danger, it was agreed that the scout should go ahead of the horseman, keeping some distance in advance, and carefully reconnoitering the way before him, with a view of detecting anything amiss in time to notify his friend and prevent his running into it. There might come a chance where it would not be prudent for Sut Simpson to press forward, but where, if the intervening distance was short, Mickey might be able to make a dash for the opening in the pass and escape with his Mustang. The Apache, being unhorsed in the manner described, had fled in the opposite direction from that which they intended to follow. Of course he could get around in front and signal those who were there of what was coming, provided the two whites were tardy in their movements, which they didn't propose to be. It required only a few minutes to effect a perfect understanding when the scout went a hundred yards or so ahead, moving forward at an ordinary walk, scanning the ravine right, left, and in front, and on the watch for the first sign of danger. He had previously so located and described the opening by which they expected to leave the pass that Mickey was sure he would recognize it the instant they came in sight of it. This was a rather curious method of procedure, but it was continued for a time, and the avenue alluded to was nearly in sight when Sut Simpson, who was a little further than usual in advance, suddenly stopped and raised his hand as a signal for his friend to stop. Mickey did so at once, holding the Mustang in check while he watched the scout with the vigilance of a cat. Sut never once looked behind him, but his long form gradually sank down in the grass until little more than his broad shoulders and a coonskin cap were visible. The pass at that place was anything but straight, so that the view of Mickey was much less than that of the scout, and had it been otherwise, it is not likely that the former would have been able to read the signs, which were as legible to the latter as the printed pages of a book. "'Begorra, but that's unpleasant,' muttered the Irishman to himself. "'We must be mighty close to the door, when some of the spellpeens stick up their heads and object to our going out. "'Be the powers, but they may object for all I care. I'm going to make a run for it.' At this juncture the figure of the scout was seen approaching in the same guarded manner. "'Well, suit me, laddie. What do you make of it?' "'There's a party of the Mormons just beyond the place we meant to ride out.' "'Well, what of that? You can lave the pass somewhere along here where there seem to be plenty of places that you can climb out while I make a dash out of that and we'll meet again after we get clear of the spalpeens.' "'There's a mighty whisk about it, and you'll be likelier to get shot than to be missed.' "'That's all right,' responded Mickey. "'I'm ready to take the chances in that kind of business. Lead on, and we'll try it. It'll soon be dark, and I'm getting tired of this foolin'.' Sut liked that kind of talk. There was a business ring about it, and he responded, "'I'll go ahead, and when it's time to stop, I'll make you the signal. Keep watching my motions.' Ten minutes later they had reached a spot so near the opening that Mickey easily recognized it. He compressed his lips, and his eyes flashed with a stern determination as he surveyed it. 
The scout was still in the advance, proceeding in the same careful manner, all his wits about him, when he again paused and motioned the Irishman to stop. The latter saw and recognized the gesture, but he declined to obey it. He permitted his mustang to walk on until he had reached the spot where Sut was crouching, making the most furious kinds of motions, and telling him to stay where he was. "'Why didn't you stop when I tell you, blast you?' he demanded angrily. "'Is that the place where you expected to go out?' asked Mickey, without noticing the question, as he pointed off the spot which he had fixed upon as the one for which they were searching. "'Of course it is, but what of it? You can't do anything there.' "'I'll show you, me laddie. I'm going there, as sure as me name's Mickey O'Reney and me. You ain't gonna try any such a thing. If you do, I'll bore you. But the Irishman had already given the word to his horse. The latter bounded forward, passing by the dumbfounded hunter who raised his rifle, angered enough to tumble the reckless fellow from the saddle. But of course he could not do that, and he stared in a sort of wondering amazement at the course of the Irishman. The latter, instead of seeking to conceal his identity, seemed to take every means to make it known. He put the Mustang on a dead run, sat bolt upright on his back, and Such even fancied that he could see that his cap was set a little to one side, so as to give himself a saucy, defiant air to whomsoever might look upon him. Scoofy, if he ain't a good rider, exclaimed the scout, anxious to assist him in the trouble with which he was certain to environ himself. But he is riding to his death. There, what next? He's crazy. This exclamation was caused by seeing Mickey lift his cap and swing it about his head, emitting at the same time a number of yells such as no Apache among them all could have surpassed. Whoop! Whoop! You bloody spalpeens! It's myself, Mickey O'Rooney, that's on the warpath, and do you cape out of the way, or there'll be some heads broken. Could madness further go? Instead of trying to avoid an encounter with the Apaches, the belligerent Irishman seemed actually to be seeking it, and there was no danger of his being disappointed. Certain of this, Sut Simpson hurried on after him for the purpose of giving what assistance he could in the desperate encounter soon to take place. Mickey was still yelling in his defiant way, with the long, lank figure of the scout trotting along in the rear, when one, two, three, fully a half-dozen Apaches sprang from the ground ahead of the Irishman, and as if they divined his purpose, all began converging toward the opening which was the goal of the fugitive. But it would have made no difference to the latter if a score had appeared across his path. He hammered the ribs of his mustang with his heels, urging him to the highest possible speed of which he was capable. Then he replaced his cap, added an extra yell or two, raised his rifle and sighted best he could at the nearest Indian. When he pulled the trigger he missed the mark probably twenty feet, for it was a kind of business to which Mickey was unaccustomed. The Apaches threw themselves across his path in the hope of checking the mustang so as to secure the capture of the rider, but the animal abated not a tittle and strained every nerve to carry his owner through the terrible gauntlet. One of the redskins, fearful that the fugitive was going to escape in spite of all they could do, raised his gun with the purpose of tumbling him to the ground. Before he could do anything, he dropped his gun, threw up his arms with a howl, and tumbled over backward. Sut Simpson was near enough at hand to send in the shot that wound up his career. 
By this time something like a sober second thought came to Mickey, who saw that his horse comprehended what was expected of him, and needed no further direction or urging. He realized furthermore that he had, by the impetuous movement of the animal, thrown all his foes in the rear, and they, being unmounted and anxious to check his flight, were certain to give him the contents of their rifles. Accordingly he threw himself forward upon the neck of the steed, scarcely a second before the crack of the rifles were heard in every direction. The hurtling bullets passed fearfully near, and more than once Mickey believed he was struck. But his horse kept on with unabated speed, and a minute after thundered up the slope, and he and his rider were beyond the reach of all their bullets. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 Lone Wolf's Tactics Mickey O'Rooney gave a yell of defiance as he vanished from view, horse and rider unharmed by the scattering of shots which followed them even after they were lost to sight. It was well and bravely done, and yet it would have failed altogether, but for the wonderful cunning and shrewd courage of Simpson, who had kept close to the heels of the flying horse. It was when the crisis came, when the Apaches were closing around the fugitive, and it seemed inevitable that he should reap the natural reward of his own foolhardiness that Sut had acted. When the warriors were confident of their success, he discharged his rifle with marvelous quickness, and with a more important result than the mere tumbling over of his man. There was a momentary check, a sudden stoppage lasting but a few seconds when the foe rallied and made for the fugitive, but that brief interval of time was precisely what was needed, and it secured the safety of Mickey and his steed. It mattered not that Sut Simpson as good as threw away his life by his chivalrous act. He knew that full well while awaiting the opportunity as much as he did when he raised his faithful weapon and discharged it into the group. The moment the piece was fired he knew that his mission was accomplished, and he began a retreat, moving stealthily and rapidly backward for the purpose of getting beyond the range of the redskins before they should fairly recover from the escape of the horsemen. But events were proceeding rather too rapidly. Before he could cover any appreciable distance, the baffled wretches turned upon him, and it was flight or fight, or more likely, both. The Apaches were brave, they knew the character of the dreaded scout, and they were not desirous of rushing one after another to their doom. Sut was certain that if he should turn and run, the howling horde would be at his heels. The instant there should appear any possibility of his escape, they would all open upon him, and it was impossible that any such good fortune should attend him as had marked the flight of Mickey. It was his purpose, therefore, to keep up his retreat with his face to his foe, forcing all to maintain their distance until he could reach the side of the ravine, where possibly a sudden desperate effort might enable him to outwit the redskins. The scout had not yet been given time in which to reload his piece, but the uncertainty whether it contained another charge prevented them from making an impetuous rush upon him. Besides, they knew that he carried a formidable knife, and like every border character, he was a professor of the art of using it. All at once it occurred to Sut that he might thin out his assailants by the use of his revolver. If he could drop three or four or more, and then follow it up with a savage onslaught, he believed he could open the way. He felt for the weapon, and was terribly disappointed to find it gone. 
He recalled that he had given it to Fred Munson when he was left alone with the Mustang, so as he had nothing but his knife, he placed his hand upon the haft, glaring defiantly at his enemies while he continued walking slowly backward and gradually edging toward the side of the grove. But the Apaches were plenty in that latitude, and the business had scarcely opened when three or four warriors commenced a stealthy approach upon the scout from the rear. He glanced hastily over his shoulder several times while slowly retreating to guard against this very danger, but the Indians, seeing the point for which the fugitive was making, ensconced themselves near it and waited. At the moment Sut placed his hand upon the knife he was within twenty feet of the three Indians crouching in the grass, with no suspicion of their proximity. One of them arose to his feet, quietly swung a coiled lasso about his head, the distance being so slight that no great effort was necessary, and then with great dexterity dropped it over the head of the unsuspicious scout, enclosing his arms when he jerked it taut with the suddenness of lightning. A few seconds only were necessary for Sut to free himself, but ere those seconds could be taken advantage of he was drawn over backward, the entire party sprang upon him and seized his gun and knife. "'Scoop me if this don't look as though I'd made a slip of it this time,' muttered Sut as he bounded like lightning to his feet. "'When you varmints undertake a job of this kind, you show the chain no slouches, but have a good knowledge of the business.' As if anxious to deserve the complimentary opinion of their distinguished prisoner, they coiled the lasso again and again about him until he was fastened by a dozen rounds and was no more able to contend against his captors than if he were an infant. As all the warriors recognized the prisoner, their delight was something extraordinary. They danced about him in the most grotesque and frantic manner, screeching, yelling, and indulging in all sorts of tantalizing gestures and signs at Simpson, who was unable to resist them or help himself. There was a certain dignity in the carriage of Sut under these trying circumstances. Instead of replying by taunts to the taunts of his enemies, he maintained silence, permitting them to wag on to their heart's content. It was wonderful how rapidly the tidings of the capture spread, the hootings and yellings that marked the rejoicing of the party were heard by those who were further away, and they signaled it to the warriors beyond. The redskins came from every direction, and within half an hour from the time Sut Simpson was lassoed there must have been nearly a hundred Apaches gathered around him. These all continued their frantic rejoicings, while, as before, the prisoner remained silent. His eyes were wandering over the company in search of Lone Wolf, their great leader, but that redoubtable chieftain was nowhere to be seen. Such was certain that he was somewhere near at hand and must know of all that had happened on this spot. Did Simpson expect anything like mercy from the Apaches? Not a whit of it. He had fought them too long, had inflicted too much injury, and understood them too thoroughly to look for anything of the kind. Besides, even if he was innocent of having ever harmed a redskin, he would not have received the slightest indulgence at their hands. The Apaches are like all the rest of their species in their inherent opposition to mercy on general principles. The afternoon was well spent, and as a means of occupying his mind until his case was disposed of, he set himself speculating as to what their precise intentions were. 
Being quite familiar with the Apache tongue, he caught the meaning of many of their expressions, but for a considerable time these were confined to mere exultations over his capture. The excitement was too great for anything like deliberation or concerted counsel. "'It may be the skunks are waiting for Lone Wolf,' he muttered as he stood with his arms bound to his side. "'They wouldn't dare to do much without axing him.' though I suppose they might sculp any man wherever they got the chance without stopping to ask questions. Hello, there he comes. This exclamation was caused by the sudden turning of heads and a sort of hush that fell upon the group for the moment, close to the approach of someone on horseback. It was already so close to dusk that he could not be identified until he came closer, when Sut was surprised to find it was not the chieftain after all. It was a man altogether different in appearance, probably a subordinate chief who had performed some daring deed which had won him the admiration of his comrades. The indications, too, were that he brought some interesting news about something. "'That varmint has been away somewhere,' concluded Sut, carefully noting everything. "'And they expect him to tell them something worth hearing, and I guess they're about to wreck, so I'll see what I can do in the way of listening myself.' The scout was right in his supposition. The Indian was the avant courier of a party three or four times as great as that which had gathered about him in the ravine. His companions had separated and gone in other directions, while he, learning the course taken by his chief, Lone Wolf, had hastened to report directly to him. Sut Simpson suspected what all this meant. He saw a number of scalps hanging at the girdle of the Apache, and he had not listened long when his fears were more than confirmed. The embryo town of New Boston, planted in the valley of the Rio Pecos, was no more. Repulsed bloodily at the first, Lone Wolf had gathered together the best of his warriors, placed them under one of his youngest and most daring chiefs, and sent them forth with orders to clean out the settlement that had been planted so defiantly in the heart of their country. And now this chief had returned to say that the work had been completed precisely as commanded. "'I knowed it were coming,' muttered the scout. "'I told that barn will that Lone Wolf would bounce him afore he knowed what the matter was, and I urged him to make for Fort Severn, which were only fifty miles away, and save their topknots. He did not say so, but I could see he thought I were a big fool, and now he's found out who the fool was. Wonder whether any of the poor cusses got away. There couldn't have been much chance.' "'Twon't do to ax this rooster, cause he wouldn't be likely to answer me, and if he did, he would be certain to tell me a lot of lies.' The young chief, having communicated his good tidings and exchanged congratulations with those about him, started his mustang forward, heading him directly up the ravine or pass. This brought him within an arm's length of the scout, who was standing mute and motionless. The redskin drew up his horse and stared fixedly at him as if for the moment uncertain of his identity. "'I'm Sut Simpson, the man that has slain so many Apache warriors that he cannot number them," said the scout, with a view of helping the Indian to recognize him. There was no real braggadocio about this. As Sut could not hide his personality, the best plan for him was to make an open avowal backed up by a rather high-sounding vaunt. This was more pleasing to the Indians, who were addicted to the most extravagant kind of expression. 
Rather curiously, the young chief made no reply. The observation of the prisoner seemed to have settled all doubts that were in his mind, and perhaps he was desirous of seeing Lone Wolf without any further delay. His steed struck into a rapid gallop and speedily vanished in the gloom, leaving the captive with the howling hundred. Sut was brave, but there was a certain feeling of disappointment that began to make itself felt. Although he would not have admitted it, yet the termination of the recent meeting with Lone Wolf had led him to hope not that the chieftain would liberate him, but that he would give him some kind of a show for his life, an opportunity, no matter how desperate, in which he might make a fight for his existence. He had spared Lone Wolf when he was at his mercy, refusing to fight the chief because he was so disabled that his defeat was assured. It would seem that the chief, in return, might offer the scout a chance to fight some of the best warriors, and such probably would have been the case with any set of people, except the American Indians. The absence of Lone Wolf impressed Sut very unfavorably. He believed the chief meant to remain away until after his important prisoner was killed. By the time night was descended, the wild rejoicing in a great measure ceased. One of the Apaches started a fire, and the others lent their assistance. A roaring, crackling flame lit up a large area of the ravine, revealing the figure of every savage, as well as that of the scout, who, having grown weary of continual standing, seated himself upon the ground. Had Sut possessed the use of his arms, he would have made an effort to get away at this time. A short run would have carried him to the place which he had in mind at the time he began his retreat. Without the aid of his hands, however, he was certain to be entrapped again, so he concluded to remain where he was, with the hope that something more inviting would present itself. The frontiersman never despairs, and although it was difficult to figure out the basis of much hope in the present case, yet Sut held on, and determined to do so to the end. He made several cautious tests of his bonds, but the lariat of buffalo hide was wound around his arms so continuously and tied so well that the strength of twenty men could not have broken it. The exploit of cutting them by abrasion against a sharp stone, which he had once done, could not be accomplished in the present instance for reason that there was no suitable stone at hand, and he was under too strict surveillance, and so it only remained for him to wait and hope and hold himself in readiness. When the fire had crackled and flamed for a while, the Apaches clustered in groups upon the ground where they smoked and talked incessantly. They seemed to be paying no attention to their prisoner, and yet they took pains to group themselves around him in such a way that if he should attempt flight he would be forced into collision with some of them. Sut was surprised that as yet no indignity had been offered him. As the Apaches had every reason to hate him with the very intensity of hatred, it would have been in keeping with their character to have made his lot as uncomfortable as possible. "'It'll come and by,' he sighed, as the cramped position of his arms pained him. "'I don't know what they're waiting for. Maybe they want to get up such a high old time with me that they're writing out a program and have sent to New Orleans for a band of music. There's nothing like doing these things up in style, and I suppose Lone Wolf means to honor me in that way. At a late hour, the moon rose, and the light penetrated the ravine where the strange motley crowd congregated. The fire still burned, and no one showed any disposition to sleep. 
By way of relief, the scout lay over on his side and was looking up at the clear, moonlit sky when he heard the tramp of horses and immediately rose up again. He saw the chieftain whom he had observed a few hours before as he came in with his news of the destruction of New Boston, accompanied by two others all mounted. They rode up in such a position that they surrounded the captive, who was suddenly lifted by a couple of Apaches and placed astride of the mustang in front of the young chief. The next minute the quartet moved off. "'Help me if I know what this means,' muttered Sut, who felt uneasy over the new turn of affairs. "'Things are getting sort of mixed just now.' He hoped that he would learn something of the purpose of the three redskins from their conversation as they rode along, but unfortunately for that hope they did not exchange a word. When they had ridden a fourth of a mile, Sut caught the flash of a knife in the chieftain's hand. The next instant it moved swiftly along his back, and the lariat was cut in many pieces. The arms of the scout were freed, although for some minutes they were so benumbed that he could scarcely move them. What did all this mean? Fully another quarter of a mile was ridden in silence when the three halted and Sut felt that the critical moment had arrived. The chief dismounted from the horse, leaving the scout seated thereon. One of the others reached over and handed him his own gun, while the third passed him back his long knife. "'Well, if I'm to fight all three of you, sail in,' called out Sut, gathering himself for a charge from them. They made no reply. The chief vaulted upon one of the other horses behind the warrior, and as he did so, a fourth figure advanced and leaped upon the other, so that there were two Indians upon each mustang. The scout scrutinized the newcomer as well as he could in the moonlight. Yes, there was no mistake about his identity. It was Lone Wolf, who remained as silent as the others. The heads of the mustangs were turned down the ravine again, and they struck into a gallop, the sound of their hoofs coming back fainter and more faintly until they died in the night. Sut Simpson was free, and free without a fight, as he realized when he gave his horse the word, and he dropped into an easy gait in a direction opposite to that taken by the Apaches. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 The End "'Well, that dear little matter was settled without any hard words,' muttered the scout as he rode up the ravine. "'It ain't the way Lone Wolf generally manages them things, but that affair me and him had when I took my house away from him, I suppose I had something to do with it.' The scout had considerable cause to feel grateful and pleased over the turn of events. He had his horse and gun, and it now only remained for him to rejoin his companions. He had already passed the point where Mickey O'Rooney had left the ravine, and he felt the impropriety of turning back and presuming upon any further indulgence of the Apaches. Accordingly, he slackened the speed of his mustang until he reached an avenue of escape. He was forced to go quite a distance before finding one, but he did at last and turned his horse into it. I don't know whether that there Irishman can find the way back to where we left the younger, but I suppose he'll try, so I'll aim at the same point. The night was pretty well gone, and his mustang had struggled nobly until he showed signs of weariness, and the scout concluded to wait until daylight before pushing his hunt any further. They were miles away from the Apache camp, 
and he had no fears of disturbance from that quarter, so he drew rein in a secluded spot and sprang to the ground. At the very moment of doing so his horse gave a whinny which was instantly responded to by a whinny from another horse less than a hundred feet away. "'That's queer,' muttered the scout as he grasped his rifle. "'Where there's a hoss in these parts, there's generally a man, and where there's a man you can set him down as an Injun. And as this can't be Lone Wolf, I'll find out who he is.' His own mustang being a strayer, he managed to tie him to a small, scrubby bush, after which he moved forward with caution and stealth in the direction whence came the whinny that had arrested his attention. His purpose was to prevent the other animal discovering his approach, an exceedingly difficult task, as the mustangs of the southwest are among the very best sentinels that are known, frequently detecting the approach of danger when their masters fail to do so. However, Sut succeeded in getting so close that he could plainly detect the outlines of the animal, which was standing motionless with head erect and his nose turned in the direction of the other mustang as though he were all attention and on the lookout for danger. The scout paused to study the matter, for he did not understand the precise situation of things. The mustang which he saw might be only one of a dozen others whose owners were near at hand, with possible several searching for him. The conclusion was inevitable that it was necessary for him to reconnoiter a little further before allowing his own position to be uncovered. Before he could advance any further, he caught sight of a man, who moved silently forward between him and the horse, where he could be seen with greater distinctness. He held his rifle in hand, and seemed disturbed at the action of his horse, which was clearly an admonition for him to be on his guard. The scout studied him for a minute and then cautiously raised the hammer of his rifle. Guarded as was the movement, the faint click caught the ear of the other, who started and was on the point of leaping back when Sut called out, "'Stop, or I'll bore a hole through ye!' The figure did not move. "'Come forward and surrender!' The form remained like a statue. "'Throw down that gun, or I'll shoot!' This brought a response, which came in the shape of a well-known voice. "'Not will I have the spirit of a man left, as me uncle observed when his wife commanded him to come down from a tree that she might pummel him. How are you, old boy?' The scout had suspected the identity of his friend from the first, and had made the attempt to frighten him from the innate love of the thing. The two grasped hands cordially, and were rejoiced beyond measure at this fortunate meeting. Mickey explained that he had not been scratched by a bullet, nor had his horse suffered injury. It was a most singular escape indeed, but no more singular than that of the scout himself who had received mercy at the hands of Lone Wolf, who had never been known to be guilty of such a weakness. It had been a providential deliverance all around, and the men could not be otherwise than in the best of spirits. "'The next thing is to hunt up the younger,' said the scout as they sat upon the ground discussing the incidents of the past few days. I'm a little troubled about him, cause we been away longer than we expected, and some of the varmints may have got on his trail. How far from this place do you reckon him to be? That's powerful hard to tell, but it can't be much less than a mile, and that's a good ways in such hilly country as this. You can't get over it faster than you can run. But you know the way thar, as I understand you to remark. The scout signified that he would have no more trouble in reaching it than in making his way across a room. 
They decided, though, that the best thing they could do was to wait where they were until daylight and then take up the hunt. They remained, talking and smoking, for an hour or two longer, neither closing their eyes in slumber, although the occasion was improved to its utmost by their animals. The scout was capable of losing a couple of nights' rest without being materially affected thereby, while Mickey's experience almost enabled him to do the same. As soon as it was fairly light, the two were on the move, Sut leading the course in the direction of the spot where they had left Fred Munson the day before, and which he had vacated very suddenly. They were picking their way along as best they could when they struck a small stream, when the scout paused so suddenly that his comrade inquired the cause. "'That's queer. Powerful queer,' he said, looking down at the ground and speaking as if to himself. "'One horse has been long hair, and I think it were mine, and that he had that younker on his back.' "'Which way was the young spalpine travelling?' The scout indicated the course and then added in an excited undertone, "'It looks to me as if he got scared out and had to leave, and it ain't no ways likely that anything would have scared him short of engines, so it's time we joined him.' The Irishman was decidedly of the same opinion, and the trail was at once taken. "'Be the powers, do you mind that?' demanded Mickey in an excited voice. "'Mind what?' asked the scout, somewhat startled at his manner. "'Just look yonder, will you?' As he spoke, he pointed up the slope ahead of them. There, but a comparatively short distance away, was Fred Munson, in plain sight, seated upon the back of his mustang, apparently scrutinizing the two horsemen as if in doubt as to their identity. The parties recognized each other at the same moment, and Fred waved his hat, which salutation was returned by his friends. The scout motioned to him to ride down to where he and Mickey were waiting. "'He's off the trail altogether, and if he keeps on that course, he'll fetch up in New Orleans or Galveston,' he added by way of explanation. The lad lost no time in rejoining them, and the trio formed a joyous party. Not one was injured. Each had a good swift horse and a weapon of some kind, and was far better equipped for a homeward journey than they had dared to hope. "'There's only one thing to make a slight delay,' said the Irishman, after pretty much everything had been explained. His friends looked to him for an explanation. "'I received notice from my family physician in London this morning that it was dangerous when in this part of the world to travel on an empty stomach.' All three felt the need of food, and Sut considered the spot where they were as good for camping purposes as any they were likely to find, so they dismounted, and while Mickey and Fred busied themselves in gathering wood and preparing the fire, the scout went off in search of game. "'Do you mind?' called out Mickey that you mustn't return until you bring something wi' ye. I'm so hungry that I'm not particular. A biled Apache'll answer if you can't find anything else. If he gets anything, said Fred, we must make away with all we can and try to eat enough to last us two or three days. That's what I always do at each meal, promptly replied his friend. There's nothing like being prepared for emergencies, as me cousin Butto Norgogon remarked when he presented the gal he was courting with a set of teeth in a wig, which she didn't need any more than does me horse out there. The scout returned before he was expected, and with a superabundance of food, which was cooked and fully enjoyed, and as speedily as possible they were mounted and on the road again. The travelling was exceedingly difficult, and although they struck the main pass near noon and put their horses to their best speed, yet it was dark when they succeeded in clearing themselves of the mountains 
and reached the edge of the prairies, which stretched away almost unbrokenly for hundreds of miles. They saw Indians several times, but did not exchange shots during the day. It was not a general rule with Sut Simpson to avoid an encounter with Redskins, but he did it on the present occasion on account of his companions, and especially for the lad's sake. A safe place for the encampment was selected, the Mustangs so placed that they would be certain to detect the approach of any enemies during the night, and all laid down to slumber. Providence, that had so kindly watched over them through all their perils, did not forget them when they lay stretched helpless upon the ground. The night passed away without molestation, and making a breakfast from the cooked meat that they had preserved, they struck out upon the prairie in the direction of New Boston. They had scarcely started when a party of Indians, probably Comanches, saw them and gave chase. The pursuers were well mounted, and for a time the danger was critical as they numbered fully twenty, but the mustangs of the fugitives were also fleet of foot, and at last they carried them beyond all danger from that source. As the friends galloped along at an easy pace, Sut Simpson struck them with horror by telling them the story of the massacre which he had heard discussed among the Apaches when he was a prisoner. All were anxious to learn the extent of the horrible tale, and they pressed their steeds to the utmost. The site of the town was reached late in the afternoon when it was speedily seen that the young chief had told the truth. New Boston was among the things of the past, having actually died while in the struggles of birth. The unfinished houses had been burned to the ground, the stock run off, and most of the inhabitants massacred. The fight had been a desperate one, but when Lone Wolf sent his warriors a second time, they were resistless and carried everything before them. "'If any of them got away, they've reached Fort Severn,' said the scout, who was impressed by the evidences of the terrible scenes that had been enacted here within a comparatively few hours. "'But I don't think there's much sense.' The remains of those who had fallen on the spot were so mutilated, and in many cases partly burned, that they could not be recognized. Among the wreck and ruin of matter were discovered a number of shovels, the three set themselves to dig a trench, into which all those remains were placed, and carefully covered over with earth. "'We'll take a shovel along,' said Sut, as he threw one over his shoulder and sprang upon his horse. "'We'll be likely to find the need for it before we reach the fort.' This prediction was verified. As they rode along, they constantly came upon bodies of men and women whose horses had given out, or who had been shot while fleeing for life. In every case the poor fugitives had been scalped and mutilated. They were gathered up, and tenderly buried, with no headstone to mark their remains, there to sleep until the last trump shall sound. Fort Severn was reached in the afternoon of the second day. There were found just six men and two women, the fleetness of whose steeds had enabled them to win in the race for life. All the others had fallen, among them Caleb Barnwell, the leader of the Quixotic scheme and the founder of the town which died with him. The valley of the Rio Pecos was not prepared for any settlement unless one organized upon a scale calculated to overall all combinations of the Apaches, Comanches, and Kiowas. From Fort Severn, Mickey O'Rooney and Fred Munson, under the escort, or rather guidance, of Sut Simpson, made their way overland to Fort Albrey, where Mr. Munson, the father of Fred, was found. 
the latter thanked heaven for the sickness which had detained him and could not fully express his gratitude for the wonderful preservation of mickey and his son sut simpson the scout was well paid for his services and bidding them good-bye he went to his field of duty in the southwest while mr munson mickey and fred were glad enough to return east End of chapter 27 End of The Cave in the Mountain by Edward Ellis